The following audio drama is rated R for rockin'. You can be sure that everything you wanted to see when you're a teenager is here. Just tantalizingly out of reach if you're under 17 or 18 years old. Hi, everybody. I'm Alex Kemp. And I'm Winnie Kemp, and together we run Wolf at the Door Studios. And we're the creators of the show Modes of Thought in Anterran Literature. Modes of Thought is a spy thriller and paranormal horror show wrapped in the guise of history lectures. I play the professor, a classics historian who's teaching a class on what he claims is a newly discovered ancient civilization that is 60,000 years older than anything we've previously known about. And it was found after a Chinese submarine accidentally went down in the Pacific Ocean. So the Chinese government cordoned off the area and scrubbed the internet. And that's why you guys can't find any information on Antara out there. But that doesn't stop the professor and his students from trying to dig deeper into the mysteries of Antara. The episode you're about to hear is from season two, and it involves the mysterious ritual that every citizen in this ancient city performed. At least that's what we think. Evidence from Antara is pretty unclear. Was this a rite of passage, a religious ceremony, or are we waking up ancient magic? We really hope you enjoy the show, and please join us on Reddit or Instagram or wherever if you want to share your theories on modes of thought in Interran literature. Thanks so much, and enjoy the listen. Modes of thought in Interran literature. Second year classics, Harvard University. taking me this long to get back to you but things got complicated um i'm in beijing i can't talk about it on the phone but i'm fine i'm fine so um i'll be back as soon as i can be uh okay i I have to go bye there see she's fine randomly flying off to beijing doesn't seem fine to me and i'm i'm from there it's just it's just weird she didn't tell me Raquel is very capable. I'm sure there's a good reason. All right, everyone, let's get settled down. Great, thank you. Okay. Everyone, uh, can you hit that first slide, please? So, this inscription was found carved into some pillars that were excavated from a circular site in Prime A. We think it's a temple because there are no cooking hearths or trash pits. Um, And from the carving on the north wall, located up here, right, uh, we get this first quote. Um, It says, and so each of the first ones through sacred dirt gathered from the land of their ancestors into the altar of fire with a gift of our bodies from 10 to nine, we received the blessing of Matoka, the god of bees, the god of starlings, the god of locusts, the god of Antara. We are bound in ceremony and in blood, and thus this city was founded on sacred ground, and we could be a people blessed by the gift of Matoka 
and share joy and pain together into eternity. So it sounds like a ritual to me, right? Um, which is pretty exciting. Hi, wrong. Hit that next one. Okay, so take a look at this. Prior to the discovery of Prime A, the oldest known city was discovered in central Anatolia. That's now Turkey, right? Um, this existed from about 7500 BCE for almost 2,000 years. Chital Hayuk is perhaps more of a megasite than a city. Uh, definition megasite basically meaning that the center of the city moved around. For instance, for a long time it was on one hill, and then at a certain point the population center shifted over to an adjacent hill. It's pretty, pretty strange. Um, there were no grand monuments, right? There were no temples or marketplaces like in later cities. Instead, these tightly packed mud brick homes, were, they were built nearly on top of each other. Um, and in some cases, literally on top of each other. There were no streets or alleys. The city's residents navigated the sidewalks on the roofs of each other's houses, and there were holes in the roof in order to come down into each individual residence. Uh, so nearly 8,000 people at one point called Chetalhoyuk home. And the settlement represents a turning point for civilization, a shift from nomad to settler. As you can imagine, there's some debate about why. Uh, does anyone have a th theory on why this shift happened? Farming. Growing food instead of looking for it. Yeah, right. Okay, from hunting and gathering to cultivation and animal husbandry. Um, agriculture opened the door to a stable food supply, which then led to more free time to build temples or create art or form centralized governments. That's one way that we've been thinking about it. First came the temple, then the city. Right. First came the temple, then came the city. Klaus Schmidt, nice get. Uh, now, Herr Schmidt was a German archaeologist who led the excavations at Gublecki Tepe. Uh, this is a pre-Neolithic site in Anatolia within the Fertile Crescent area of Upper Mesopotamia. Gobleki Tepe is the site of humanity's oldest known temple. And it was constructed almost 11,000 years ago, uh, 6,000 years before Stonehenge, right? At the time of the construction of this site, most of the human race still lived under hunter-gatherer tribes and building a monument of this size would have required like a massive coordination of multiple tribes coming together in greater numbers than had we had any evidence of ever coming together before. So this site predates agriculture, it predates domestication of livestock, it predates pottery. The 50 colossal T-shaped pillars were engraved with intricate humanoid figures, jaguars, scorpions, boars, vultures, and snakes. Deadly creatures, not deer or the other sort of previously seen uh, targets of the hunt. Despite the need 
for hundreds, possibly thousands of people in order to build the equivalent of the Great Pyramids, there were no houses, no agriculture nearby, no kitchens, no cooking fires. The nearest water was three miles away. So, Herr Schmidt decides that what people wanted to build was temples and that religion is what brought them together. And they eventually developed agriculture in order to feed the builders of the temples. Now, only about 5% of Kublai Tepe has been excavated so far, so who knows what other revolutionary stuff will be uncovered there. Yeah, Jimena, go ahead. So were towns formed because of agriculture or the other way around? Well, right, that's exactly the question. Thank you for bringing me back to task. Um, what I was trying to get to in a long-winded way is that very question. Did agriculture give way to complex societies or did complex societies precede agriculture? I believe that a particular religious ceremony integral to the spiritual and cultural life of Antares from this time of the founding of the city could illuminate in some way the answer to that question. Next slide. Okay, thanks. Now, here are a series of bas-relief carvings uncovered near the inscription that I read at the beginning of class. Notice the nine first ones throwing handfuls of dirt into the fire. You can see that here, right? Uh, in the next panel, go ahead. Matoka is seen here as a humanoid figure with the bottom half of an insect, um, kind of looks like a wasp. Matoka is summoned from the flames and he's holding a ceremonial dagger. We're missing panels three, four, and five, but uh, the story resumes here in panel six. I think it's a story, maybe it's a recipe. Uh, one of the first ones now holds the ceremonial dagger and cuts off the fourth finger from their left hand, throwing the severed finger into the fire. And in the final panel here, we see all nine of the first ones, but look at this, they are all missing that same finger and they've been encircled with what looks like twine or rope. Gross, right? Um, but not too surprising, maybe a little more extreme than what we usually see, but ritual body modification, it's not uncommon in religious rites, right? Um, we think of it as maybe a little bit primitive, but circumcision in Christianity. Uh, there are watches and vigils, fast, depriving mourners of food, drink, sleep. Uh, those are all practiced by the Siana in New Guinea, as well as obviously Ramadan, right? Um, periodic fasting. Uh, the fire ant ceremony um, that's conducted by the Satere Mawe in the Amazon, where uh, the young men who, in order to prove themselves uh, as, I guess, quality members of the tribe and achieve adulthood, have to wear these woven mitts 
that are filled with uh, bullet ants, fire ants, that uh, are excruciatingly painful when they bite you, they have to do this 20 times, 20 times, in order to become fully accepted grown men of the tribe. So pain and suffering transforms the individual, symbolically, sometimes literally, bringing them closer to death, only in order to experience a spiritual rebirth. This is not new. This is everywhere. Look at Luke Skywalker getting his hand cut off in Star Wars, right? So, how can we understand the sacrifice of the first ones without understanding the God that demanded the sacrifice? Matoka is, ironically, the God of compassion. Um, more often, he's represented as a swarm, uh, a swarm of bees, of ants, or of birds. And if you read up on the creation myths, or if you were here over the summer, then you might recall there was Ecopa, and Ecopa was the thousand-eyed god. Anyone remember? Read up on that. Okay. Um, well, Matoka is the son of Ecopa. And one of several offspring, actually, Matoka is responsible for hiding Ecopa to keep the world safe. Uh, that's going to sound weird if you don't remember the story. Ecopa, the god with a thousand eyes, was created in order to always have one eye open, in order to establish that the world existed. If all of Ecopa's eyes closed at once, the world would reset to zero, and we'd all have to start from scratch again. Um, so Matoka, son of Ecopa, has hidden Ecopa in order to keep Ecopa safe, right? Matoka is the guardian of the world, and he does this out of compassion for mankind. What's really fascinating is that a similar ceremonial ritual was commemorated in Prime B, um, the other city that's 17 kilometers northwest of the city, right? Uh, but it was different. They had changed it. So here we can really start to track the change from the second empire to the third empire, the next phase of Antaran society, which gets ugly. Um, next slide. All right. As you can see, uh, the west side of this circular structure has been damaged. So a bunch of the panels we're looking at are missing. And what I'm guessing is probably panel 3B here. Next one. Uh, we see a row of nine figures in chains. Um, the next intact panel is 6B. Go ahead. And now those figures... And these priests all seem to be missing the fourth fingers on their left hands. Okay, absent in this panel is Matoka. He's not there. Who we see now uh, is Ratak, mistress of the victorious hunt. Ratak is, well, she's tough, man. <laughs> she's the god of war. God of achievement and the God of amassing wealth. 
She appears here again with the blade, though this one looks more like a sword than a ceremonial dagger, right? Um, you can tell by the length that that's a weapon. Um, we have not seen any weapons of war in the carvings up until this point. So something has shifted. Now take a look at this slide, go ahead. Here you can see the chains, right? The twine or the rope that we saw in Prime A, that's transformed into chains on these other figures here. So are they slaves? Why are they taller than the other figures? Are they depicted this way because they're more important? Um, were they another tribe with different genetics going on? We just, ow! What happened? I don't know. Ow! God, my arm. Oh, my arm just started hurting. Oh, did, I, did I bang it on something? No. That's so strange. Ow. It's just standing here. What, what's going on? Do you on? want to see a doctor? Hey, you should sit down. No. No, I'm okay. God damn. Ow. Um, okay, so there's another shift that starts happening in the culture at the same time that we see this shift in the ritual from the Matoka version to the Ratak version which is a change in the caste system. We still haven't done a deep dive on the caste system of Antera, um, and we will, but for now, just be aware that this new subcaste emerges. Um, it's named in multiple carvings in Prime A, and these people are known as <clears throat> the vessels. They're described as, quote, bearers of sin, uh, the vessels of pain, uh, but pain can translate as sadness too, so that, that sounds a little more dramatic. Um, and also as a cup of tears. Um, so <laughs> who are the people that are relegated to the status of cup of tears? And why are they always depicted as taller than the rest of the Antarans? This is an invitation to speculate. Um, so just be aware, drawing a line here, uh, we're going beyond facts now and we're just gonna jump into the swimming pool of wild conjecture. I have a friend, uh, had a friend um, in Beijing who was working on an interesting hypothesis. This is that the Interns were not homo sapiens. Wait, <laughs> wait, nobody is saying that they're from outer space. What she was suggesting is that they could have been Homo erectus. More specifically, she was working on a theory that these were the Denisovans. Have you guys heard of the Denisovans? Okay, I'm gonna put a link on the website for you to check out. Um, very interesting. Not a lot of DNA to work with, but in Siberia and uh, throughout Asia, we presume, there was a separate branch of the Neanderthals um, called the Denisovans. Um, so we already know that various groups of human ancestors were walking around at the same time as contemporary Homo sapiens. 
That's not even a, a dispute, right? Okay, so back to facts now. Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, some other branches of the tree of Homo erectus were all alive and coexisting in separate tribes that interacted with each other uh, across the globe. That's true. What we don't know is if any of these other branches besides human could have ever even developed a culture. But if Dr. Chen was right, that there might have been an actual city and culture and religions and mythology built up by a different branch on the evolutionary tree, that would shake things up a bit as far as our understanding of the predominance of Homo sapiens and the sort of uh, you know weird species-centric supremacy that we all kind of enjoy being at the top of the food chain. So that might give you some ideas for your thesis papers. Um, speaking of which, at least three of you have not made appointments to see me. And we're running out of time, okay? So get cracking. All right. We're going to pick it up next week. Um, I want to talk about the Enteran notion of time. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating. So we'll see you then, okay? of thought in Interran literature. This podcast is made possible by Harbridge University, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Peeler Prize in Archaeological Literature, and the Harbridge Family Trust, with an in-kind donation and production assistance from Wolf at the Door Studios. For more information and a reading list, please visit modesofthoughtpodcast.com.